0: You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem solving in higher education on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal: Promoting Inclusion and Success for All
1: ways that we make sense of the world around us has always been kind of it stays with me and it's something that I definitely want to share with students so they can also say this is this could be I can explore this more Mm -hmm. and I my voice is important a lot of these students have incredible stories and if they use those stories as a way to kind of lead them academically to exploring bigger questions I think they they just I think they just sometimes need an encouragement to, to realize like that's my story is really striking.
0: That's Mitzi Carter. She's a cultural anthropologist and visiting lecturer in FIU's Department of Global and Sociocultural Studies. In global learning courses like The Anthropology of Race and Ethnicity and World Ethnographies, Mitzi and her students study borderlands, how different people can talk about the same place so differently, and how cultural forms interact even interactions among diverse influences on one's own identity. This was Mitzi's experience. She felt cultural discomfort growing up, trying to make sense of her combined African-American and Japanese ancestry. She talks about this in our conversation, how she invites cultural discomfort into the classroom how she brings her personal story to the courses, and how she creates spaces for students to share and reflect on their own stories, some of which are profound and painful. She describes how she helps students process this through personal, scholarly, and civic expression. Mitzi is really an expert in these kinds of mashups, and she describes them best, so here she is. I remember first meeting you at... The global learning course design right. workshop, mm-hmm. and you came because you were teaching a course that was already GL designated, right? Yeah. Yes. So, tell, do you remember which course that was? Because you teach so many courses. Yeah, I think it was
1: for the intro to anthro to mm. the intro to anthropology course. Um, yes, and it was already a GL designated course. So, mm-hmm.
0: and were there any big takeaways from? that experience?
1: A lot, Um, you know, I think part of, when you go to a big research, like an R1 school and you finish your PhD at those kinds of schools, there's a lot of emphasis on theory and not as much on, you know, what, how, you know, best practices in the classroom. And, you know, even if I, I finish my PhD in anthropology program, but it's, so, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on how to, you know, think about the world around us. Right. But how do you teach that? How right. does that translate in an, um, a way that makes sense to students who are really new to it, to the subject? And so you, that professional development workshop was really helpful in breaking down, you know, def- the defining um, these different parts, the com- different components of global learning. And then also the exercises that we we learned were so useful for me to take into the into this, this kind of introduction, introductory courses. So for example, the, um, the one I still use to this day is the Y chain that you, you taught us about. And I love that I when I talk about arranged marriages in India, I talk about, you know, I put the main question up, why do women, many women in in India today still prefer, you know, these arranged marriages over, you know, what? is quote unquote called a love match. And so then they work together um, using the article that we read and then the documentary we watched and then they, they do this Y chain and it always works. And so it always generates a lot of discussion. So that was incredibly helpful for me.
0: Oh, wow. I'm definitely going to link to that in the show notes. And see, that's why I said it's so great for us to be able to reminisce because I actually haven't used the Y chain mm-hmm. In a while, in a oh, workshop, yeah. and so I am going to bring that back. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I love it, and I'll definitely uh, link to it in the show notes. So, you had big takeaways from the workshop, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you, I had big takeaways from when we met in a in a completely different context, and that was at the Japanese consulate mm-hmm. here in Miami. If I remember correctly, it was an event to welcome back. Jet volunteers, right. and also to see off jet volunteers. Right. These are our students; uh, they're they're graduates from from university who then go to Japan to teach English. and mm-hmm. And the jet program is is global, I believe, yeah. um, sponsored by the Japanese government. And we had a chance to talk a little bit about about our personal lives, right? Because we were at a cocktail party, right? <laughs> and. You told me a little bit about your story and your identity, and I, over the years, have have witnessed how your personal story has been kind of a way into global learning, mm-hmm. if if you will. Would you share a little bit about who you are and how you came to
1: be? Because it's a cool story. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, I think we well, I think we we were talking about the um, you know why I even went on the jet program. You know, many, many, many years ago, mm-hmm. um, in the first place. So, um, and that I think I'd mentioned at that that moment that I was, um, I was trying to find a way back to my home, more or less. And, and home b- being this kind of, you know, more of a, a, a this uh, concept of that's kind of ambiguous still for me. I was still trying to figure out what Japan meant to me, um, because my mother is from Okinawa, Japan. And my father is black American um, from Texas. And um, I think I always, I grew up hearing these stories about Japan from my mother. Um, And her stories always were so colorful and beautiful and also painful because she grew up, she was a war survivor um, during World War II. She's quite old now. And my father was an American soldier uh, who was stationed there. And she worked on the base in Okinawa, making ID cards, and couldn't communicate with him, right? And so I grew up watching these, my parents, who I love very much, have these intense kind of cultural clashes sometimes. And so that was something that was always interesting to me, kind of growing up with these two different kind of worldviews, and then um, taking an anthropology class later on, and then having that aha moment, and then wanting more, and so that's that's kind of why I went eventually went back to to, to Japan to teach, and then later on, back to Okinawa, um, to live and to kind of understand some of these these cultural practices of my mother, and to understand these sometimes what would emerge. As clashes, you know, just misunderstandings of like how people understand the world around them, how they make sense of things, um, things that you grow up with that, that are norms, and they they sometimes didn't see those. For example, when my you know I I don't know I know my father didn't understand this, and I didn't understand this until I took a a course in um, Japanese anthropology. But women, um, when men get their paycheck, they, give the, they hand over the entire paycheck to the wife. To, she manages the household, and she doles out an allowance to the husband. <laughs> my, mother, my father's a very macho Texan man. <laughs> he did not get that, and he used to get so annoyed. Um, but so, you know, these are the kinds of things that I kind of grew up with and later on really fully understood. Yeah. aha, uh-huh. This is this is why they they would get annoyed with each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think. um, uh, Yeah, I've always just really been interested in um, really trying to understand both sides, you know, with this kind of hindsight and with this. Um, stronger academic perspective to make sense of all of these things I've grown up with and all these different stories that they would tell about a same place. Mm -hmm. My father's stories about Okinawa were like, you know, very military-like stories. There was about stations and tours of duty and, you know, you know, the the names didn't match the names, the same places my mother talked, you know, discussed. And so there was this, you know, this very different sensibility of the same place. And so I was always interested in these kinds of borderlands of, like, how you could talk about the same place
0: so differently. Oh, that's so interesting. So when we think about um, how we define the approach to global learning mm-hmm. as... Um, Diverse people collaboratively mm-hmm. analyzing and addressing complex problems that mm-hmm. transcend borders so right. so here I hear you talking about um, diversity even within you mm-hmm. and and we talk a lot about global learning as being a, a, a process that involves multiple people that you really can't do it alone, but right. in, in in a way, you are calling forth your parents, mm-hmm. and uh, other perspectives that you have gained from your reading to analyze this this dilemma or um, this uh, dynamic, if you will, of there being clashes, right. you know, cultural clashes. Mm-hmm. And to me that's so interesting because in many of your courses, or in your courses, and you teach many courses, and maybe you could talk a little bit about which courses you teach, um, you do a lot of mashing up, mm-hmm. that in ways that bring those different perspectives together in a way to produce a whole new perspective. You're creating new knowledge mm-hmm. about things. So, would you tell us a little bit about um, the courses you teach, okay. and maybe some of the cool mashups that you've that you've done in those courses to help students bring together different perspectives? To analyze a, that single point of analysis.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, one of the things that, um, well, I've, okay, so first of all, I teach um, mostly introduction to anthropology, um, intro to East Asia, world ethnographies, um, and uh, introduction to, I think it's called, the technical term is a uh, name for it is anthropology of race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. which is also a very big intro survey. Course. So for my World Ethnographies course, um, I use quite a few speakers, some locally, but also I access, uh, I reach out to speakers, uh, friends sometimes, uh, who I've known throughout for many years, um, who are in academia, some who are not, uh, and reach out to them and ask them to Skype into my course and uh, that's worked out really well because sometimes students don't get a chance to interact with people from Japan. Um, So, for example, I had um, in my this wasn't in my world ethnographies class, but in my introduction to anthropology course, I had uh, Akiko Urasaki, whose stage name is a witch. She's a fabulous Japanese rapper. Um, she's just, I think she just released her album a few months ago, and she Skyped into the course. She was one of my like, close, close consultants when I was doing my own dissertation work. I met her in Okinawa and stayed in touch. And so she was so grateful to, to be asked to, to kind of talk about her music and what it means to use this kind of black urban cultural form in a place like Okinawa and, you know, how she was thinking about Tupac and his lyrics and how she could kind of translate that culturally to what was happening there and so the students really loved that and she was actually here for Art Basel and p- was performing a few years ago and she, she came and she surprised the students and gave them a final exam. She <laughs> handed out the finals, <laughs> and so it wow. was really um, and she, she Skyped in several times uh, mm-hmm. We've had other speakers like Baye McNeil, who's a writer for the Japan Times, and he's uh, he's been writing a lot about uh, blackface in Japan and what it means. Uh, and so students love talking to him because he's such a character, and he's able to like really help them uh, think about these different kind of um, these forms, these these again these kind of black cultural forms and that emerge usually like in one particular space of the United States or in, in Europe. And what does it mean when those travel across the ocean, mm-hmm. right? And so um, the students were really able to kind of engage with him and, and think about this in a different way. Think about what does race mean now? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was really, really, uh, that, that turned out to be an amazing core uh, class, um, I'm working with. Um, I worked with uh, speakers uh, when I did my uh, section on farm working. Mm-hmm. So we were reading "Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies" by anthropologist Seth Holmes, and we had as a, a farm worker organizer from Homestead come up to the class and my world ethnography course and. He talked to the students about seasonal farm work in Miami and what that what that means for people who are down there and why they 're leaving their countries and um, and then it, that was really impactful for a lot of students to to hear what 's happening in their own backyards and uh, actually, one of my students ended up going to work uh, they needed translation help because a lot of these people don 't even speak spanish they're speaking indigenous you know. Uh, languages from Central America, parts of mexico, and so she 's down there now helping them to even learn spanish <laughs> and so uh it 's been it 's been really impactful for for the students and for myself to
0: to have these speakers come and skype into the class fantastic yeah. so that's it's so interesting to me that you have the bravery to do that and, and and, and I, I do think it's it may feel very natural to you, but it's somewhat brave to invite sometimes a speaker to come in um, to talk about issues that you don't have any you don't have any control over. You don't know what's going to happen mm. and, and what that will release for students, especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about identity. Right. When we're talking about in this current milieu, we're talking about um, immigration. Right. These are difficult Concepts mm-hmm. to that students are grappling with, right. especially in Miami. Yes. immigration and identity yes. are part of everything mm-hmm. that we do. So, does that ha- does it happen in the classroom that when you open it up to these issues, that sometimes conversations or things get personal?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, how, you, do you, for, how do you how do you handle for, that? for the
0: students? You mean? Yeah, for yeah. the students, and also do you share your personal story with, oh, yeah. with your students? Oh, I start
1: off the class talking about my personal story, uh-huh. especially when we get to, um, for culture and for my race and ethnicity course, actually for all of them. <laughs> and I find it, it's a great way for me to open up to them because we're going to be sharing um, these kind of intense, intimate conversations. For example, when we talk about, um, um, the color of love. There's this wonderful book um, by horge freeman who who writes about what happens um, in Brazil in this kind of northeast town of Brazil um in Bahia, where people are where families uh, tend to uh, give more kind of affection towards their lighter skinned children because uh, well, there's a lot of reasons why. But that seems to trigger a lot of um really deep, profound and painful conversations with many students who may not have been able to articulate that as well for themselves until they read this material. And so what I, ch- I know these things are going to come up for students and that sometimes they're they're reflecting in ways that they've never reflected on these things because we don't like to talk about race. People get very uncomfortable. Right. And so um I, you know, I tell them yes. My mother did the same thing. She would pinch my nose. That you know, there's a p- passage in the story about how the the a lot of parents would you know pinch their nose their children's noses to make them look less flared yeah. out, wow. right? And mm-hmm. so I tell them I said yes. This was a thing, <laughs> right? This is very common out even for you know for la- Latinos, but for you know Asians as well. And then the stories pour out a little bit more. People a little bit more. um, willing to share and reflect on it using the academic material Mm -hmm. so they that it's not just you know out there in this kind of unsafe way but they they are able to kind of look at the social science behind how it is that people are putting you know these these meanings onto these actions right why is it that they do this and so when they have that why and they can understand it in a larger historical context of white supremacy, right? They can understand. Okay, well, it's because they want me to less, look less black, and why is that? And so then we can go into all of these things in a. In a and it turns out it, it, every class it's very respectful. We have very respectful conversations um, because we we really spend a lot of time laying the ground rules. You have to do that in a class that's going to bring up these kinds of personal stories. Um, and so yeah, I use um, I tell them a lot of. Um, I share a lot with them. And then they are also in turn willing to share with me um, or the classmates. And I give them various opportunities to do that either in class or, you know, in their writing. And so in the Yeah, I want to ask you
0: some, to, to go and to pull back the curtain a little bit more okay. on the ground rules mm-hmm. and then the opportunities that you give students okay. to express themselves and to connect with the scholarly material in a personal way.
1: Okay. So um, what right in the syllabus I have, you know, we, we have a set of ground rules that I write out. You know, um, you, may not ha- you, you may not agree with a lot of the things that are said here in the class. You may not agree with me, but we have to create these, the way of talking to each other so that we can respectfully disagree. And then I tell them all the time, you know, I had this student, I give them examples of how I've had students in the past who didn't agree with the readings, and, but they were able to frame their disagreement academically and respectfully and it was a brilliant paper and so i tell them i'm not gonna you know if you're scared to, to write these things because you think I'm going to mark you down, don't be, you know? Okay. And so they they feel a little bit more comfortable when I tell them that. Um, so you're explicit with your students oh, that
0: their, their beliefs, their practices, their opinions, yeah. uh, you won't mark them down No, because of what they think. No, no,
1: you can't. I had one student who wrote this beautiful paper and it stands out for me um, over the years because he, it was... A, the the section on implicit bias, and the first f- paragraph just kind of blew me away. And it, I knew it, it it was hard for him to write, but he said, "I know that I am racist," mm. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow!" And I know, and he he wrote me because I knew he was nervous because and he was explaining why he was raised the way he was raised and. Um, and he was nervous because he wrote me, he's like, I, I need to talk to you in office hours and, you know, I hope you're not upset. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not at all. I think it was, it was such a good paper because of the way he used the material in the class to describe his own kind of biases and, you know, the values and the traditions and the stories that he was raised with and he was able to analyze those. Um, and the fact that he was working towards how to
0: change that was it was just brilliant. And I can imagine that you opened the door for that kind of analysis and that kind of self-reflection and, and perspective consciousness because you said, I'm not going to grade you on what you think, but more on how you think, right. the process that you use to tie the personal to the scholarly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's fantastic. That's, I think that's an important point. And then the flip side of that is actually giving students ample opportunities in right. the classroom, right. multiple venues right. to communicate that that meet their needs. Yeah. So what, what are those okay.
1: like? Okay. So, for example, um, I had an assignment in my race and ethnicity course where they had – it was on our, our unit on um, uh, race and crime, mm-hmm. which is a big unit. And they – uh, they had to write to their congressperson. They to find out who it was. A lot of the students don't know at all, so they had to find out who their congressperson was. Write, research what their stance was on. You know, ver- I had a list of things that they had to research, and then they had this chance then to say whether they agreed with them or didn't. But in bo- in in both cases, they had to use the academic material. To say why they agreed with them or why they didn't, and so it gave this, it gives them this chance. Like, okay, well, maybe I didn't agree with the readings, but here's my chance where I can kind of couch my disagreement with in this way academically, right? And so it gives them that outlet, right? It doesn't have to be my way, right? Um, yeah. And so, and I try to give them a variety of of readings so that it's not all like bent towards my point of view, but they can. They they're able to kind of you know bounce their these these different viewpoints um, against the, the readings themselves. They can juxtapose the readings um, uh, against each other, so they can try to make their own decision right about a certain topic. Um, and I find that when you do that, students are much more. Um, they they kind of come to um, really incredible conclusions about anthropology and how the world works on their own and Mm -hmm. um, and and not a forceful, not such a,
0: top-down way, right? Right, you're placing before students conflicting or apparently conflicting ideas mm-hmm. and inviting them to make those connections. Right. So right. connect what your your congressperson is thinking about this to how you think about it and right. also how the scholarship. Connect yes. uh, these two very contracting, contrasting points of view about this topic these two authors right. are, are putting
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, down. And then do you also offer students personal reflection I think you said that you offer students opportunities to do some personal self-reflection yeah so um
1: they they have lots of chances to do that and very in various ways so like in my um actually I learned this activity from Sarah Mahler who is amazing she is <laughs> She's been the biggest mentor to me, and she doesn't even realize like the extent of her mentorship. Um, so she uh, came up with this activity, and I've kind of put a little spin on it, but it's really her her genius activity that she's she she's built into her course, which is called the Discomforting Project, and I love it. And it uh, it's basically a project where students have to pair up with someone who they think is culturally different from themselves and it can be, and they can define culture. However, it doesn't have to be race and ethnicity or nationality. That's the first thing people are always going to go to, but it could be much more than that. And then they will um, take that person on an activity. Usually a lot of students go to their parents' house and they have dinner with their families together and it's beautiful. And And then vice versa, they, they have to change off and in that Paper that they write up, they have this chance to describe that experience, you know, think about it anthropologically, but then reflect on it personally. Like, what did it mean to you? Um, and it, that is such a powerful assignment because we tend to live in these little bubbles in our world, and so students, for a lot of the students, this is the first time they they're really breaking out of that that bubble. And digging deep and thinking about it again academically, but also you know having this ample time to really reflect um, mm-hmm. and and think about what it means to to engage with someone who is really culturally different from themselves, mm-hmm. and to
0: experience cultural discomfort yeah there's yeah. A, there are a lot of spaces for discomfort in your in your courses in that. You know, you're, you're asking students to make those connections, and that's hard. It that's is. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. That, you know, your brain is working really hard and sweating. My, my right. professor isn't telling me right. how to think about this. I've exactly. got to figure out this for myself. Yeah, yeah. And you're honoring the struggle. Yeah, it's hard. Some students, they get very uncomfortable with it
1: at first. When I tell them, and they're like, oh, especially my, my students who are a little bit more anxious or um, introverts – They hate it at first, but then they get to know their partners, and I I read these evaluations afterwards, and um,
0: they love it. They love it. Now, that's really interesting that you just mentioned that, because a lot of faculty with whom I work may feel a little bit of trepidation to do some of these kinds of activities, Mm -hmm. because they do worry that... It will show up in their evaluations mm-hmm. that um, when students are asked to do things outside of class, when they're asked to do service, when they're asked to do volunteering, mm-hmm. faculty worry. Mm-hmm. But you're telling me that your students are loving it. Well, I, tell, I mean, I tell them it's an anthropology class. And I say, look, there's going to be a lot of f- topics
1: that we're going to read that will make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We don't get to talk about sex and race, and uh, you know, and our other kinds of classes that we take. So these are the topics might be uncomfortable, but also this project is going to be uncomfortable. And I tell them that on the very first day when I'm introducing the syllabus, I'm like, "But please stick with it. Yeah, <laughs> you you may not like it at first, but I, I guarantee you, if you try it, it'll be really." I had the student, for instance. Um, he was uh had so many stories from this, but this one student who is he's i think he was from Venezuela, grew up mostly here mm-hmm. went with his partner he they chose each other right they they really went out of their way to choose somebody who was really different from themselves. He chose this guy who was from like Miami gardens, and this guy chose him because he never really hung out growing up in Miami, he never really hung out with a Latino person, yeah. And this other guy, this Venezuelan, is like, you know, I've never really socially hung out with a black person. I've never picked up a phone to call a black friend over. I've never had black person over at my house. My parents don't hang out with black people. Like, and so he like was very conscious of this choice. He went up to play basketball with just play hoops with his friends, this guy's friends in his neighborhood. In Gardens, which is a black neighborhood. And his parents were really mad, he said. They didn't want him to do this project. They they were worried about his safety. (laughs) They didn't want him driving up there. But he did it. And he said, he told me afterwards, this was like the most life-transforming project ever because in that single day, so many of my stereotypes were totally blown out of the water. Mm -hmm. And... And I know it sounds so corny to some people to do this kind of project, but it's that little kind of that that little bit of like hanging out with someone that makes them that humanizes them. That you know, you see, okay, people fart. They they laugh. They they laugh the same kind of jokes we do. And, <laughs> ah, yeah. You know, it's a it, it really breaks down a lot of. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've had so many so many wonderful stories. I had one parent who was more excited about doing this project than his daughter was, she was Korean, and he was so happy that somebody was learning about Korean culture that he bought food for the entire class. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it was, it was, really, it was really great. I mean, so it moves beyond the student themselves because so many of our students are, you know, they live with their families that it really impacts, especially when they do these family dinners. Right. And the families are meeting somebody for the first time who is really different. So and then students write these brilliant papers about like kinship and like, you know. When I was going to this person's house, I thought I was just having dinner with their family and it was their tia, their tío, their primo, you know, like all the whole extended family. Mm. And it made me realize, oh, we have very different ideas of what family means. And, you know, and so these kinds of activities are, and that's Sarah Mahler. I I tell her all the time that she's that, you know, kind of teaching me um, what works was incredibly helpful. And I think everybody needs a strong mentor who Will share successful mm-hmm. activities, and then you can really put your own spin on them. But you know, having somebody um, kind of give you these gu- guidelines for what global how students are understanding global learning because it's, it can be a very vague concept. Yes. Yes. And if you don't know how to put it into practice, it, it can be really tough when you're first
0: starting out. And Sarah was one of the first faculty members to uh, develop a global learning course. She did it with a team um, in the very first summer workshop that we had, it was six weeks long. Mm. That six week long workshop has over the years, we've peeled away the uh, unnecessary aspects of it and and honed it into this diamond that is a four and a half hour workshop now. Wow. And um, but but Sarah's work has had impacts far-reaching mm. across the university. We we do share uh, teaching practices mm-hmm. and and pedagogies across the institution. Right. Um, I'll definitely link in the show notes to some to her book, to um, a a video that she did for us on um, how to have students create wikis. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a very powerful um, collaborative activity Mm -hmm. that students do. And also I'm thinking about how Sarah pushed the envelope in terms of giving credit for discomfort. Mm -hmm. So often Mm -hmm. as teachers, we are we feel a little trepidation mm-hmm. around inviting discomfort right. into the classroom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't necessarily know how we'll deal with our well, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. Right. It's a terrible feeling right. to walk into a classroom unprepared or students aren't responding. Right. Our own discomfort is something that we avoid. Right. right. And then there's inviting students discomfort. How do we uh, choreograph or orchestrate uh, these difficult dialogues mm-hmm. in our classrooms. So discomfort amongst our students right. and discomfort within a student can become uh, a, a negative thing yes. if it's, if it comes out in those, in those teaching reviews. Yes. So what you're talking about is uh, inviting discomfort into right. the classroom, mm-hmm. setting ground rules around mm-hmm. it, making it safe mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable and then also giving students credit mm-hmm. for for discomfort, and discomfort it seems to me is not only an essential component of global learning and of transformation, right. but of scholarship, yes, and and of just life, right, right, just just being a person. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'm hearing you talk about are the far-reaching kind of unintended positive consequences mm-hmm. of inviting personal connections with with scholarship. And one of the things that I hear about you all, all the time, Mitzi, I hear from you, I hear from your students, I hear around, <laughs> is that, you know, these mashups that you're doing in the classroom with content and with speakers, they're causing students to come to you <laughs> with ideas for yeah, mashups. Yeah. So so tell me a little <laughs> bit about Ideas for pedagogy and course design that may have come from your students Mm because you seem to to invite that and be open to it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah one when I was teaching my race and ethnicity course last semester I had students we were we were on our race and housing unit and one of the several of the students were taking Dr. Scott's class who's a GIS uh, teaches GIS um, in the department and he apparently was talking a lot about mapping and um, mapping residential areas in Miami. And my students said, oh my God, you two need to collaborate because your lessons go hand in hand and it would be so fabulous if you could like join together. And so i I approached him, and he said, yeah, I've heard the same thing. <laughs> oh, really? Let's <laughs> do this. And so we're going to do a whole unit together this semester that looks at, brings together this GIS technology. Can you talk?
0: To, not everybody knows what GIS is. Oh, In fact, okay. I, it took me a little bit of learning about GIS. What really is it? Well, I will be <laughs>
1: learning along with my
0: students. Because well, okay. I,
1: but it's a, it's, a, it's he uses um, these kind of special maps to really kind of uh, zoom in on certain um, geographic spaces and um, is able to kind of use that technology to look at changes over time. And so we'll be able to kind of map out what areas, you know, using census data, look at what areas... Um, have um, have remained kind of static racially or ethnically, and then look at, you know, we can map on top of that, you know, maybe um, what kind of laws were in place, what kind of laws that were in place, uh, like let's say, in 1980s versus 1945 and see, okay, who is allowed to get these kind of home loans at this time? And then what happens when these laws change? And did this neighborhood change because of that? What happens with re- um you know, certain kind of, what is it called, incorporations, uh, Mm -hmm. when neighborhoods incorporate. yeah, And then, yeah, what what happens when new freeways are built? um, Which neighborhoods do they tend to cut through? And then you can look at those patterns. And it's really about, like, kind of focusing on the patterns across. And what we'll be doing is focusing on Miami in particular. So looking at, you know, our own place. And, for example, when we look at, you know, I'm trying to think of an example that really struck students. Uh, uh, Virginia Key, mm-hmm. right? Students don't realize that was like one of the only places where Black people could swim. You couldn't swim up until almost like the 1970s. There was no place where you could legally go swimming on the beaches. People would try to sneak in down near Homestead if they could, but it was like very difficult. for for people to and so when they realize oh my god this happened here (laughs) and then they they go to Virginia Key and they see that little plaque that oh you
0: know this was historic this was the only place and um, so I gotta ask you a question yeah so do you have students in your World Ethnographies course look at Urban Beach Weekend? ooh that is such (laughs) a great idea (laughs) right to tie it oh my god I'm totally gonna do that (laughs) right like you could tie it to the work with with, with Virginia Key, yes so students could do oh my God. It, I'm totally interviews do that. and observation because and, I'm, I'm never thinking even thinking about, about that. that. And we'll yes. link to the show notes about Virginia Key and <laughs> and <laughs> Urban Beach weekend. And then I have to ask you another question. So when you're talking about this um, mashup of mm. GIS mm-hmm. using the satellite data to mm-hmm. make na- maps, mm-hmm. and then you're talking about using census data, mm-hmm. do you know Moses Schumo? In journalism,
1: oh, I've heard of I've heard of that name, but I don't yeah. know him. No. so he
0: is also a uh, a founding Global Learning faculty member, and he received one of our Global Learning fellowships. Mm-hmm. So this is um, these are seed monies, if you will, uh, up to four thousand mm-hmm. dollars for a faculty member to do undergraduate research mentorship. Okay, and to do primary research of a global, intercultural, international uh, bent, and to publish it. And to the extent that it's possible, even bring that data back into a course hmm. for students to mess around with that data mm-hmm. in the way that you're talking uh-huh. about doing. And he, he did something a little bit similar, and I'll, I'll connect the two of you, because what they did was they used the census data to map Specific census tracts just to find out who's living where. Yeah. So, for instance, if you look at Cayocho, right, which everybody thinks, oh, that's the heart of everybody thinks that's the heart of Little Havana. Right. Right. If you look at one side of mm-hmm. Cayocho, mm-hmm. it's all Cuban. Right. If you look at the other side, mm-hmm. I believe it's Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then looking at Doral, which uh-huh. is a neighborhood that's very close to FIU. Right. And we think, oh well, this whole area is also very Cuban. We think of Miami as very Cuban. Right, right. Well there's so there's so many Venezuelan neighborhoods, right. but then there are also Jamaican, Bahamian, yes. little little neighborhoods. Pockets, right. Little pockets. Yeah. And local people will look at that data and say, Oh yeah, I know, because that restaurant has uh-huh. those colors on the uh-huh. outside which align with the Jamaican flag. Right. And that restaurant across the street has colors uh-huh. that align with the Nicaraguan flag. Right. <laughs> so so this work is interesting mm-hmm. that you're doing the, the work in anthropology. And we have someone in journalism doing the work, doing similar work in another discipline mm-hmm. because he also applies it to um perioditas, which are oh, little newspapers yeah. that are kind of transcending borders in that they mm. have local Miami news. They have the news that's local to that community and then also connections. Yes. So what's going on in the U.S. that impacts Venezuela or and vice versa? Right. What are the relationships? Amazing. Wow. So I just wanted you to know about this. And I guess the folks that are listening to this podcast are hearing how we work in global <laughs> learning <laughs> you know why i exist which is to help to make these connections yeah. uh, but research mentorship that's another connection that you've got you've had students come to you to 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 be your be their mentor yeah right yeah. so you got to talk about <laughs> okay got to yeah. talk about that because okay. that's that's an incredible when when a student will come to come to you and, and ask for uh, that kind of guidance mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it's been, it's been great. I love when, first of all, I love when students even come to my office, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think this is changing for a lot of professors. You get a lot more emails and people actually coming in person, but when they come in person, I love it because then you, you can engage with them in a different way. I can show them books on my bookshelf and say, look, you need to read this. And, but I, I have students who've come over to me and, um, um, one student who was working on her master's, um in her master's thesis, and she wanted me to, to mentor her in um, her project on black Koreans. She was really into K-pop and really was interested in this um, kind of um, popularization of, of of black music in Korea and black hip hop in Korea and, or now like it's, it's actually their own hybrid form of hip hop. But, um, and so she knew that about my work on, on blackness in Japan. And so she said, well, can you help me think through these issues for my project? Um, and I, and I did that and that was really fun. Um, and I learned a lot from reading her stuff, uh, but the um, right now i have got a student who is like one of the curators at the Museum of Sex. Yeah. She was yeah, which I didn't <laughs> even know there was this Museum of Sex here in Miami, but she's an amazing brilliant student. She was in my 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 intro to anthro and she said, "Hey, I want to work with you on, you know, thinking doing an independent study, kind of thinking through these questions about like the evolution of sex and sexuality uh-huh. and um, you know, because this is the work that I do. And I want to think about it anthropologically. And so I'm so excited because I'm reading all this stuff that I haven't, I haven't read all of the, the material that she's proposed. Um, and I'm going to help her to put together annotated bibliography. And um, yeah, that's, that's been really, it's that, been really fun, actually, working with students with undergrads. Yes, they come from, they have such you know, they have their own passions, and then mm. they, they bring material that I've never come across. And so, and I just kind of help guide them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just can't help but think that, um, that your story is so interesting because you had a, a problem, if you will, as a child, which was making sense of the cultural mashup of your parents. Mm-hmm. And you've navigated that space personally. And then you've allowed yourself to be vulnerable and share your story and model what it can be like to make sense of a complex racial and cultural identity, mm-hmm. which so many of our students have mm-hmm. and will only become more so, hopefully, as our nation becomes more, uh, more diverse. Mm-hmm. And you've brought scholarship you know into that space and that opens students up to sharing not only making making sense of these things for themselves and engaging with the scholarship but creating new knowledge mm. that we need in the world and 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 that's really the essence of what global learning is all about but it's interesting to me that your way into global learning mm. was a highly personal mm. was a highly personal weigh in yeah yeah for sure I, I keep I mean even into my my
1: my undergrad major that's what drew me in it was my first intro to anthropology course on Japan mm-hmm. I'm like oh that's why <laughs> but I mean it's it that story is always kind of that kind of yearning for learning about these kinds of the ways that we make sense of the world around us has always been kind of it stays with me and it's something that I definitely want to share with students so they can also see this is this could be, I can explore this more, mm-hmm. and I, my voice is important. A lot of these students have incredible stories, and if they use those stories as a way to kind of lead them academically to exploring bigger questions, I think they, they, just, I think they just sometimes need an encouragement to, to realize, like, that's, my story is really striking. Um, you know, when I tell students about, you know, sometimes they, they think segregation was so far back, you know. And then I'm like, no, my parents, my dad brought my mom back from Okinawa. He got a list from the military. These are the states that you can't go to as an interracial couple, right? You can't bring your Okinawan wife to Arizona. You can't bring her to, you know, like he had a list. He told me about this list. So Texas was, my mother, you know, arrives in Texas and they're in a, in a totally segregated neighborhood, um they could live together of course they could they, that wasn't on the list but they they lived in a black neighborhood and people didn't know what to make you know even back then you know there was just it was uh, there were so many and when i tell students about like what what it was like for them to live together as an interracial couple in this segregated place they're like wow and, you know that wasn't that long ago if that right. was your parents right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and so i think using those kinds of stories also are Stories can be helpful in making students realize That's, that was just one generation mm-hmm. back, you know. And I tell them my grandmother, my, gla- my black grandmother, adopted my uncle and aunt who were half Korean, half black. And I use that story to talk in my East Asian Studies class to talk about, yeah, there are all these soldiers who were in Korea, right? <laughs> and, you know, this these are the kinds of policies that happened around, you know, mixed race kids who were there. And um, I use that as a vehicle for understanding war in a different way. Um, I talk about changing identity of Asians when I and I use my story and to talk about what it means to be black and Japanese. I have them, you know, I have them talk to a filmmaker um, Megumi Nishikura, who put together a beautiful film called Hafu. Uh, we sit on a board together, the Hapa Japan um, mm-hmm. Executive Board. So she. Um, and uh, her film is really one of these kind of helpful ways for students to understand, okay, Asia is changing, right? Yes. It's not this totally homogenous place that people immediately say when they talk about Asia, right? It's mm-hmm. homogenous. It's a very, ch- it's a dynamic place. The world is a dynamic place. And so I try to use these stories as a way, again, to kind of frame what global learning can be about. Mm-hmm. And
0: um, and yeah. it's very important to uh, to note that, these kinds of topics that you're bringing up about identity and um, how they shape the world around us, what's possible, Mm -hmm. where you can live, what kinds of jobs you can have, uh, where you can go to school, these apply not just to the social sciences, Mm -hmm. but to the humanities. And the sciences, especially in the yes. STEM fields, mm. so uh, you know in our in our university, we have a new program succeed, and we all we also have programs in modern languages that are focused on who gets to learn this stuff, who is comfortable mm. in the classroom, who mm. are we reaching out to who are which perspectives are we not inviting into the classroom right. and and we are all the poorer for it mm. right so so it, it's very important that the, our students make these connections. Mm-hmm. This is why we haven't put the brakes on global learning in terms of the number of courses that can get the designation mm-hmm. and why we did not choose as a university to say, well, all students will just take this world ethnographies course right. and then we'll be done with it. Mm-hmm. Because so many science majors, engineering majors, biology majors, uh, physics, chemistry, math majors, um our students that are going into the health professions, they may just take world ethnographies or intro to anthropology or intro to East Asia just to fulfill that global learning right. credit. Mm-hmm. but in so doing, they're having the opportunity to get these experiences to um, to to this perspective consciousness to build their understanding of of how race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, all these different aspects of our identity shape the world around us Mm -hmm. and what we think we're capable of doing absolutely and we want those our students to make those connections to their major whatever their major is yes so i don't care if if that's just the one social science class that a science major takes in their whole career yeah it's 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 it could actually help with their persistence and their success in their personal and professional lives yep that's that's
1: one of the things that i i learned um from Sarah Mahler's blog, she writes on um, how to teach a big intro to anthro class yeah. to a bunch of non-anthro majors, and right. it was so helpful for me to to kind of to throw out the textbook. Um, I mean, I still use a textbook, but I I use it kind of um, as just a foundation. That's I am really more interested in how am I going to make this applicable to their own majors to their future career in international trade or their future career as a criminologist, right? And so, and the, and her blog was really helping, helped me to kind of think about how to get rid of that, that jargony part of anthropology, which can be, you know, nobody, nobody cares about, you know, a lot of those things that we tend to teach about. Like if we go straight with, with all the due textbook, respect to the anthropologist. I know, I know. And I know a lot of people will probably be upset that, you know, you don't teach everything that Clifford Geertz wrote about. Or, you know, I, I am more interested, like, and I, I and I, this is why I'm so thankful for Sarah Mahler because she left me so much information to kind of help me shape the course, which is to think about how, what are the tools that anthropology is, is really you know can, can, that can be used can be applicable to their, to their lives what, what are those important tools in our field that we could really help students develop and so when I approached it that way instead of you know what are the theories what mm-hmm. are the you know what are the, the who are the you know what's the, the genealogy of our of our anthropology you know the, the big anthropologists if and then just kind of thinking again around you know, these this tools of how to analyze discomfort, how it is that we come to to find comfort in the first place around people who are like us, how that can be used, you know, as a way to divide people. If we, we're really conscious of those things, then that's what's really important, that they get out of our class, right? Yeah. And not, not the, the Clifford Geert said this and, right. you know. I, so I, you I are, out.
0: you have to be, Um, If you're teaching a global learning course, especially at the introductory level, what what I hear you saying is you've really got to do a couple of things. One, you have to be a systems thinker. You have to think, you know, how can the student apply this knowledge in the different system, in the complex system of their life, like to different professions, to to their personal life, to their civic life. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then you also need to dial it back. to your own personal story, to the very beginning, what lit your fire. Right. Yeah. Right. Because as academics, it is our it's our bread and butter to become super, super specialized Mm -hmm. and to carve out and protect, to build a wall around, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, our area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And uh, but if we teach from that point of view, then what we're teaching becomes so distant and so Unapproachable, right. so uh, so specialized yeah. that how can we possibly we need how can we possibly kindle a, a love for this except in the most in the tiniest tiniest minority of our students who right. are just kind of like born to be anthropologists right 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 mm-hmm. so we're at an all comers we're not in an all comers university but we're at a, a very a very open access institution right. um, and and so. What you're saying is you want to bring that same kind of open access to your intro to anthropology class. And it took me a while to learn because when I
1: first started, I didn't teach that way. (laughs) You know, I was like teaching in the way that I was taught. And and that's, you know, I realize it's a very different way of learning today. It's a different way of, you know, there's different expectations in um, and, and a kind of commuter university and there's like there's I just had to rethink how to teach and mm-hmm. it just it took time um, to kind of get out of that that mold <laughs> you know
0: it's uh, I love it so yeah. so I like to end the podcast by asking if there are any experiences or any resources anything that people should read or or watch or listen to that might help to Kind of expand their global awareness, perspective, engagement. Any any cool recommendations you have for people?
1: Um, specifically on teaching? or uh, It could be
0: on anything in your whole life. Just oh something that kind of like blow people's mind to have them think, to help people think, oh, the world is more complex and interrelated than I realized. Or, wow, that's a cool perspective that I never realized even was.
1: Mm. Wow, let's see. You've you've mentioned I, a
0: few things so yeah. far. Yeah.
1: You know what book that I'm I'm really I love for for my I love for my students is um this it's a it's an anthropology book but it it reads so, you know, it, it's it's a very easy read. It's mm-hmm. kind of jargon-free and um but it's a great way to kind of think about what we do as anthropologists. It's called How to Think Like an Anthropologist by Matthew Engelke. And it's a, it's a cheap little paperback book and my students love it. And I, um, I, it, I think it's a, you know, for people who are interested generally in anthropology, it's a good one. Um, Lee Baker's book, He's an anthropologist uh, from Negro to sa- uh, from Savage to Negro, which looks at this kind of this construction of blackness. It's something that people don't tend to think about, like how is race, but not only how race, but how the an- the disciplines of academia kind of shape these,
0: fuel these ideas, which then fueled policy. And I think that might be a particularly good reading for our colleagues across disciplines. Yeah, for sure. Working with students of color.
1: Yeah, my students um, recommend this book as well Um, and think it would be helpful for some of their their own instructors um, just to have that in their back pocket when they are shaping their syllabus, for instance.
0: Um, And to become more comfortable perhaps with the discomfort that, more empathetic with the discomfort that students might be feeling inside the classroom, outside of the classroom, And also maybe even more comfortable with the discomfort of having discussions about race. Yeah. Even in the science classroom. And I think that would be a really helpful book to become more empathetic with the discomfort that our students might be feeling Mm. in our classroom, Mm -hmm. as well as our own discomfort, perhaps talking about issues of race um, that might be impacting the study of, of whatever topic right. that we're having uh, on the table in the classroom or even the kinds of current events that might be influencing yeah. how we teach, when we teach, who we're yeah. teaching, how students are learning. You know, actually, another one that just
1: came to mind, I'm sorry, <laughs> is um, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. I know it's an older book, um, but it's and there there's some critiques about it, but there's it's a really wonderful book book for for students not just in and who are taking a social science course but for medical students so um, I was asked to teach a class in the medical school here at FIU on cross-cultural communication and looking at like things like body language and how medical students can even approach this idea of what is culture and so and how they can bring it into their own work and so um and and I raised you know I talked about this book and um I think they were really, I think some of them asked me after I gave that talk, you know, can you tell me who wrote this and I want to read this book? Because that book was so impactful. It was an ethnography really about, you know, different ways of understanding health, disease, illness, and healing from these two different perspectives of, of these Californian doctors and this Hmong family from Laos and how now they have new policies where they bring in shamans into these hospitals. And so that book was so impactful. I know one of my students who read it in my world ethnography class really thought that was such an incredible book that he ended up going—he he's, he's, was like a—he's a motorcyclist. He went to Laos um, last summer, and he rode on this—the how I forget the name of this very famous motorcycle loop— and he met a lot of Hmong people on his trip it was actually in Vietnam and he said, "Oh my god i because I read this book I knew like a little bit about their history and that that trip was so much more impactful to me and now he's he's telling the students the other he's in my other class now this year about um, this goFundMe project from one of the students the this Hmong person he met on this trip and I mean, like it's those kinds of books are so powerful. It can be really life transformative, in in small ways, and sometimes big ways. But um, they cross they cross disciplines. You don't have to be an anthropologist to read ethnography. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mitzi, you are the queen of mashups.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I thank you so much for pulling back the curtain on how you make them, why you make them, and some examples of them. I think they're just going to be so inspirational for so many people. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu and if this episode was meaningful to you please share it with colleagues, friends and students you can even give it a rating on iTunes thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal